So you've got to get the right balance. Uh, regulation is a catalyst for innovation, not a constriction on it. And in order to actually deliver on tighter regulation, invariably you need more technology. And the regulation actually drives the demand for, for the technology and for the services and moves people forward in a very positive way. That's Ian McKenna and his take on how regulation spurs innovation is one that's created an entire industry of reg tech firms looking to capitalize on laws and government policies. I spoke to Ian a bit about his opinions on how advisors should love regulations and how the UK has always been ahead of the US in regulatory issues and a whole lot more on this episode of the Wealth Management Today podcast. Hey there in the world of wealth tech. It's always a pleasure to spend time with you. Uh, this is the economic reopening version of the WM Today podcast. And I'm your host, Craig Eskowitz, and I run a consulting company called Ezra Group. We help wealth management firms make better technology and business decisions through our research and advice. And on this podcast, I speak with some of the smartest people in the industry who are on the leading edge of technology and innovation. And before we go on, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast and leave us a five-star review on iTunes, as well as share it on your social media networks. I would greatly appreciate it. And my guest on this episode of the Wealth Management Today podcast is Mr. Ian McKenna, the founder of the Financial Technology Research Center. Hey, Ian. Hi, Craig. I'm laughing already. Doing? I haven't said anything. <laughs> well, you know, you're laughing because I said center. Well, you know, it's, it, it's the deba debate between English, English and American English. Yeah, for those of you at home. nations separated by a common language. For those of you listening at home, I, the, the research center is spelled C-E-N-T-R-E, which, which is the, the as, as Ian says, the proper way to spell it, as opposed to the American way. Well, I'm so glad to... Well, uh, we've, we've been spelling it that way for several hundred years. Well, actually, probably <laughs> well, we because it would have been old English, yeah. but whatever. I don't know how many centers they had a couple hundred years ago, but good enough. So thanks for being here. Uh, we have a whole bunch of stuff to talk about. Uh, so how about, before we start, how are things going uh, in, in uh, the area you're in London with uh, all the, uh, the pandemic? Well, you know, I, th I think we're constantly adapting to the new normal but the big view seems to be at an industry level over here uh, and, and I think it's very clear that businesses are taking this far more seriously and being frankly far more cautious and strategic at the same time um, than the government is I mean you know the government here frankly is a mess hmm. Um, they don't know what they're doing. That's, that's quite clear. And, you know, the way they test everything by leaking it through the press, you, you can see that, 
you know they'll leak one thing the one one day see what reaction they get leak another thing the other day and and i think you know business really is just like let's just ignore the government and do the sensible thing um it's it's quite clear you know talking to some of the manufacturing community over here the insurers the platforms um i think they're taking a uh a far more forward and conservative view, mm-hmm. you know, in, in, in terms of travels out for 2020. Um, and we are, and who knows, it may be for 2021, but we're all learning new, new, new ways of working. It's great things that particularly um, in terms of embrace, embracing change and new technologies, things that people have been resisting for decades are suddenly finding they can deploy in days um the cynic in me would then say yeah but it's all the things that brings money into the manufacturers and we need these what we need to see is change all the way across the business process you know not not just those things that bring in money but those things that cause real change uh, one thing I do see that is is very refreshing is the number of advisors has probably moved over the last three or four years quite significantly. I remember writing something for one of the papers I write for in the UK uh, in the financial services industry probably about three years ago, strongly advocating virtual meetings. Um, and, and the response that I got from the majority of readers was not positive. <laughs> um, someone wrote a similar piece um, around the turn of the year and got a far more positive reaction. Mm-hmm. I think by the turn of the year, we'd got to about 50-50. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but what I found really great is seeing messages on social media, on on media uh you know trade media platforms where you're gonna you're getting advisors that were saying i never thought this would work for me and actually it's great you know the clients can engage with it i'm making far more effective use of time um and and i and i think some of the again if you get away from what the government are talking about because they'll 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 say whatever they think is going to put them higher in the popular in the in the Mm. in the polls that's you know they've got no interest in getting a real solution to anything mm. um but you know pe- people are sort of looking a lot of good very good and positive discussions about improvements to both efficiency and quality of life time spent with families um i think we need to see how this pans out for younger people though mm. um you know though those in their 20s probably at the moment it doesn't work out so well for you know if they're not as established in the, in the, in their life sure um and we've got to be very careful that it it, it doesn't need to another form of exclusion mm. uh but but generally you know hey you just got to get on with it and make the best out of it and uh yeah absolutely that's what people are doing and i, th- I think the other one other thing is make sure that these changes and smarter ways of working aren't just temporary but permanent so one of the things we were talking about uh, in prepping for this call was uh, thing, something you said, which I thought was really interesting about advisors should love regulations. Can you, tell us, can you tell us why you think advisors should love regulations? 
because it's really good for their business and and it, and it, it it's a differentiator um we, we've bit of background um in the uk we've had financial regulation since 1986 um and we've been through several rounds of it and i'm going to be the first to say we haven't always got it right um but in the long term i mean we've got to a situation today where there's more demand for financial advice than there's ever been um there's definitely um an excess of demand over supply um advisors are earning more money than they've ever done their balance sheets are stronger than they've ever been and and those messages actually come from the the regulator in the uk the financial conduct authority um they're not happy with everything that they've done regulators never are this is one of the things you have to uh learn i think is um if you set an organization up with the explicit mission of looking at how everything is done in the industry don't be surprised when they start unearthing you know turning up stones and finding things underneath um that you might sure. rather not have seen mm -hmm. but in the long run overall um in direct contradiction to what everybody expected i mean if we talk in the more recent past uh the retail distribution review which the process started around 2005 2006 finally came into enactment um at the beginning of of 2013 and if you'd spoken to most advisors over that 2005 2013 period the world was going to end it was going to be really bad for them it was the worst possible thing that could have happened mm -hmm. um and you speak to them now and the reality is their businesses are stronger than they have ever been um, there's more demand for financial advice than there's ever been their services are more clearly differentiated. Um, but I, I mean, I would say, and, and certainly you know, people I speak to in the US suggest to me that, um, you know, Reg BI is, 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 is a very simple level uh, of financial regulation um, from the things that have been described to me, it actually appears to be significantly less than was brought in by the 1986 Act, Act over here. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's worth pe people studying, you know, what have we got now? 35 years of regulatory experience in the UK. Um, we've done a lot of things wrong. A lot of things have not worked out, but a lot of things have worked out very well indeed. Um, and it's certainly made financial advisors stronger. I mean, you you do need to be obviously on your guard in terms of of, of how these things are um, put together and the consequences. I mean, the original plans that got stopped in the end. But if you know, if I go back to the early eighties, um, at one point. Um, the deputy chair of the group that was drafting all the requirements happened to be the CEO of a very large dis um, insurance company with a tied distribution force. Oh. Um, and shall we say that the approach that they put forward at that time uh, probably wouldn't have come out with the best outcome for independent advisors. Um, 
but that wasn't what succeeded. So, you know, we ended up, um, I think, with a very good place. If we look at what's happened since um, retail distribution review was put in place, um, and that, by the way, was the process that completely and utterly outlawed for all forms of distribution. So not just our equivalent of um, RIAs, but our equivalent of broker dealers as well. Um, no commission on anything. No commission to anyone for any investment products anywhere. A um, couple of other that, things. When did that come out? The retail distribution uh, review? It, it took effect on the 1st of January 2013. Oh. And as I say, you know, in the run up to it, advisors thought it was going to be the worst thing ever and it's turned out to be the best thing ever for them there are there are a couple of things that have come along uh along the way that have helped as well um changes to annuitization regulations the so-called uh pension freedoms um that's helped and also um mifid mifid 2 i think the really interesting thing about mifid 2 is it completely it made all investment charges transparent well can you explain for people who um first us based folk can you explain what mifid 2 is mifid 2 was a piece of european union legislation actually um that introduced very strict rules for the disclosure of charges mm -hmm. um so basically it's 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 an asset manager's worst nightmare. All the stuff that they had been saying for decades that it was completely impossible to actually quantify what these charges were, all of a sudden the EU wrote the rules that basically said, well, if you don't give this information, you're liable for a fine of up to 4% of global turnover. Hmm. And suddenly all sorts of things it was impossible for asset managers to disclose suddenly became totally transparent um and the the, the disclosure is not just on asset managers um it's on basically anyone that's taking a percentage out of a client's investment so that's the 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 asset manager that's whatever package product it's coming along with sure um be it, you know be it, be it a tamp i suppose in your in your terms or an annuity contract or whatever um and the advisors as well have to disclose their own charges, um, both in you know percentage if they're applying them, but more importantly, pounds and pence terms to the customer. So the customer now gets an annual statement and they have to be, uh, they do ex ante and ex post. So before you engage in a transaction, you have to lay out what the impact of the charges will be but you actually have to go back every year and say, okay, your fund has now grown to X. And out of that, mm -hmm. the advisor's taken A, the investment manager's taken B, the wrapper provider's taken C, in pounds and pence terms. Sure. So it's really, really clear. Um, so, what, so what you, let, let, let's compare what can't happen. You can't, I, I must admit, I am amused when I see um, various think products being launched by large financial institutions in the US that are supposedly free. Hmm. You know, there, there's, there's no charges. 
And then one looks at those organizations and said, and when did they last work for nothing? Mm. They're not really free. It just means if someone's saying it's free, it just means you've got to look harder for where they're taking your money. Mm. You know, global financial institutions don't become so by giving free services. You know, yeah, I, was, that, I was having this conversation um, last week with somebody about, about, about custody. Mm-hmm. I was talking to one of the heads of, the, of custodians and we're saying how, when is it going to, when is that going to change where custody is no longer free? And he felt that it would never change because that's just the model's been that way since the beginning. It's always been free and no one's going to pay for it. But well, I think someone will start it once they, because they're going to realize it's not, it's not obviously not free. It's not free. And your, your costs are being hidden and being borne by the client and the clients don't really know what they're paying. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So the asset, you know, in any charge, you know, an asset manager could choose to show the custody charge rolled up into their charges. Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially what it means is you're, you're, you're getting very clear um, disclosure to the customer. Now there are some bits of MIFID too that are challenging. You know, for example, there's a thing called the 10% rule. And that means that any time that a client's fund drops by more than 10%, the advisor has to do an explicit notification out to the client. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, that, would, that would be a problem here. Um, it's not easy over here. And, hmm. and it's caused a huge amount of stress in the last couple of months. I mean, you know, there, there were... Many organizations where they were having to send clients three 10% letters in as many days. Um, And and there is, you know, I think that's something that all people will look back afterwards and there's a lot of feedback and how do we do it better. But by the the same token, the clients warmed up to what's happening. Mm -hmm. You know, they're kept. I I, I think one of the things really that all of this has hugely shown and again, it, it, it's where advisors really demonstrate their value is talking to the customers, mm-hmm. you know, engaging with them. Um, isn't one of the most important parts of advice, coaching clients not to make bad knee-jerk decisions. Sure, exactly. You yeah. know, um, it, it's been really interesting talking to an awful lot of advisors um in the last few months that so was like absolutely the huge numbers of clients looking at the current situation say yeah that's a buying opportunity mm-hmm. and, and peak people taking it that way mm-hmm. um so but but coming back to this wider point um i think as you begin going down this sort of regulatory road in the us um and i do absolutely believe it's a good thing it's a good thing for advisors um also for technology companies there's a huge synergy between regulation and technology because basically you can't really have one without the other Mm -hmm. and then so you know in order to actually deliver on tighter regulation invariably you need more technology and you know the regulation actually drives the demand for for the technology and for the mm. services and moves people mm. forward in a very positive way um 
and, and I think it's interesting, you know, when you look at the global regulatory effect, mm-hmm. um, I mean, it, it's certainly been something, uh, the level of regulation we have in the UK has definitely been a huge benefit to our fintech industry. Um, the FCA decided very early on that they were going to embrace fintech. Um, to be fair, it's not just the FCA. Um, I was doing some work with uh, Her Majesty's Treasury a couple of years ago. Um, and coming out of meetings at the Treasury, just walking past, there was one particular poster that really resonated with me. It was up on the wall. It was the 10 most important things to HM Treasury are. Mm. And supporting fintech was number five. Well, so, impressive. you know, you're, 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 you're talking the people that are deciding where the country's money is spent to make fintech one of their top most important things and it wasn't even at the bottom of the list it was well it was halfway up and they've really set a regulatory environment Mm -hmm. to support that so much so that it does it's interesting because i think the lack of regulation that you have in the u.s or or I'm not, it's well, different we have plenty areas. of regulations here. I wouldn't say there was a lack of regulation. Okay, but the regulation perhaps being applied in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and particularly, you know, regulation here is hugely focused on consumer protection. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and all the rules are around, okay, what's causing the best outcome for the customer? And can you mm-hmm. always demonstrate that best outcome for the customer? And mm-hmm. if you can't, can be referred to the ombudsman and they can award against you in really quite substantial. And, you know, we've, we've been through, and I think this is something I would say, as your regulatory landscape is evolving, mm-hmm. um, watch out for, you know, one of the things that you can, that a lot of people can learn from the UK is because we were relatively earlier into this far more detailed layers of regulation, we've mm-hmm. made a lot of mistakes. Right. You know, um, and, and, you know, traveling around the world, speaking to regulators in other countries, you know, frequently they'll look at what we've done and they're like, yeah, okay. The Brits probably overcooked that a bit. Mm. You know, we'll go for 80, 90% of what they're done. But again, you know, you, you start talking to, um, global wealth management firms and, and frequently one comes up against uh, people saying, yeah, there is a view that if we can build something that can meet UK regulatory standards, we've got no problem rolling it out anywhere in the anywhere else in the world. Sure. And I think one of the challenges, perhaps, that some of your, I mean, okay, we've talked about this on previous occasions, um, the great range of financial services, software businesses you've got over there, okay, mm-hmm. you've got a huge domestic market, which is very attractive, but there is a definite difference in the level of uh, regulatory reporting and regulatory structures mm-hmm. um, that someone building a piece of software to meet UK requirements and perhaps Australian requirements um, would have to put a lot more into a system, which probably makes it more difficult to justify all the extra work to take that system out to other jurisdictions. Whereas if I load it, you know, I can think of systems that are being built by companies, not just in the UK, Australia is another example, where they're built with a whole load of 
extra regulatory requirements build in. Right. So if they want to take some of those systems into the US, actually just turn things off rather than turn right. things on. The, the flip of that, and it's important to, to uh, present both sides, the flip of that is, you know, I do frequently look at some of the things that your, uh, your software companies deliver and think, oh, if only we could never deploy that in the UK because of X, Y, and Z regulation. Mm. Um, so you've got to get the right balance. Uh, regulation is a catalyst for innovation, not a constriction on it. Um, that's a really important thing. Also, if you get the regulator overreact, which we are getting and have had over here uh, recently, particularly around, we're now, in the early 90s, we had a massive, massive um, scandal about um, people had been given the wrong advice um, around transferring out of defined benefit pensions. And I think it's one of those things you've got to be very careful at saying, well, you're given the wrong advice on perhaps you might have made a recommendation mm -hmm. five years ago and suddenly someone's looking at it and this will absolutely loom up now. You make a recommendation on something that's got a 25-year timeline until you get mm -hmm to knowing whether it was the right advice or not. And someone turns around after five years and said, ah, well, we bet if we look at that now, it was wrong. Mm -hmm. But like, hang on a minute. If, if the customer had a 25-year investment horizon, sure. just trying to take a snapshot, and the situation we have right now, where on the one hand, um, yes, because of pension freedoms, we've seen a huge amount, again, of defined benefit transfer business. Um, but what it's done is it's virtually causing all the professional indemnity capacity to dry up. So it's actually getting very hard for advisors to get insurance on defined benefit transfer advice. Um, and if they can't get the insurance, they can't give the advice. So actually that area of the advice market is, is drying up. And it, it will be very very difficult because that is an area where okay i can th i can think of an example of somebody i know well myself who used to work for one of the insurance companies um took a transfer out of the company's very very generous db scheme but he basically said he was going to need to claim pension for with with no growth whatsoever for 35 years before he wasn't better off in having transferred out. Oh. Um, however, asset values declined 25% in 10 days. And all of a sudden, is that advice questionable? Mm. It, you know, like so it, it, it's one of the things that's, that's very difficult is um, when people try and you know, look at a long-term investment over, a, test it against a very short time scale. Um, so I, I think you've got to be really, really careful um, around that. I'm going to take a break from this interview to talk about one of my sponsors, and it's the Invest in Others Charitable Foundation. Uh, the Invest in Others has an awards program that recognizes charitable work of financial advisors in communities across the country and around the world. These awards are presented at their signature event, which is an annual Invest in Others Gala. 
over 600 advisors and financial service executives attend this premier event to celebrate those individuals that actively give back to their communities. There are five categories of awards that recognize the distinct ways that advisors have made a difference. I'm just going to read one or two of these. So there's the Catalyst Award that's presented to an advisor who has been an active uh, stimulus for positive change and displayed entrepreneurial vision and leadership to nonprofit organizations for at least the past three years. Uh, there's also the Community Service Award, the Global Impact Award, and they're uh, self-explanatory. And I'm um, on the judging committee for some of these awards. And I have to tell you, the, the advisors who uh, are nominated have done some incredible work, again, locally, uh, in local communities in the U.S. and around the world. I would advise everyone to go to the website, investinothers.org, to read more and to donate. Uh, one of the things you mentioned in our pre uh, a pre interview before we we started the, this uh, episode was you we were talking about robo advisors and yep. I'm going to combine this with the news. So there's been a couple robo advisors in the news. I wrote an article about uh, robo advisors and uh, a company called Motif, which was a, sort of a yep. robo advisor. Uh, yeah, remember them. Know them well. Right after ten after ten years, uh, do you have any comment on that? It's a really interesting one, isn't it? Because um, they certainly seem to capture people's imagination for a while. Mm-hmm. You know, it. I think it was quite a, a novel approach. Um, mm-hmm. But then, you know, as was quite clear, they'd raised so much money. Right. And, you know, what sort of level of asset value were they going to need to get to, to to ever pay it back? Yeah, I wrote that as well. You, you, they, they raised a, they, they, they took in 126 million. Yeah, and their total assets were barely a billion, uh, and three quarters of that was institutional, uh, which isn't a bad thing. But you know, they it, it didn't seem like they're yeah you know, they, they were innovative when they started, but as 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 any innovation uh, we've seen, it's going to get copied, and you need to be aware of that and ready for it, and you need to be able to adjust. And keep your value prop, and they didn't seem to do that. They just sort of put it along. Yeah. Um, I mean, we 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 had one over here that shut recently that um, had expenses of more than a million, and and when all the liquidation documents came out, um, it appeared that they had income of a thousand. <laughs> Literally, you know, it was about a thousand pound income a year against a million in expenses. How that kept going, and it it, it ran over multiple years. Um, hmm. And actually got acquired. Um, I, saw, but, I read that. I know. Yeah, I forget yeah. the name of that one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Motive was acquired, right? So yeah. we're talking about robo advice, and then um, a company called Advisor Engine, which yep. um, I like to call robo platform. So they enable advisors to launch their own robos. Mm. So they were not B 2 C, but B 2 B. They were acquired by uh, Franklin Templeton, uh, the the asset manager. So one thing you mentioned was just talking about the term robo advice. Is it the right term? Are they really robo advisors or as you say, are they actually robo asset allocators? Yeah. And I, and I think they're robo accumulation asset allocators, you know, how many of these players are actually delivering anything that would work in decumulation? Sorry, that's a horrible word decumulation, but you know, no one's come up with a better one. Services is great for these kind of, obscure t- or not yeah. obscure, obscure terms that no one knows what they mean i mean i mean retirement call it retirement spending right yeah retirement spending, spending. Down I, in retirement. I know i know a couple of people 
um, that are due to be coming to market with full-blown accumulation and decumulation robos. And in, interestingly, you know, one of these, for example, is it, it's a financial institution that's put millions upon millions into building it all and they haven't taken it and, and i think when that comes to market and i've spent quite a lot of time looking at it um mm. over the last couple of years as they've been building it mm. that will be a transformation because it, it it literally works by harvesting a vast amount of data um putting it into a model which typically will run about 3 million scenarios before coming out with a, a plan for the consumer. And like we did a little, Sorry? No, no, like this is more than, no, it's more than, it, it's looking at uh, different tax wrappers. It's, it's looking at you know, different asset mixes. I mean, this, this thing- It's a multi-goal uh, analytical tool. Um, yeah, it, it goes into all your different spending, different types of spending, but it also goes into not just traditional retri retirement um, investment products, but also things like reverse mortgages. Um, it, it genuinely has been built as an end-to-end -end, um, yeah, annuity, traditional um platform type products drawdown products mm. and equity release reverse mortgages you know that that has been built incredibly powerful engine mm. um and mm. i think we'll have that's what i would call robo advice although what's the name of that company um it's not live yet mm. okay. um they're in so, stealth mode yes um I would say it will go live soon, but then I was having conversations and helping them run research events back 15 months ago hmm. when it was expected to go, you know, but they're just doing it quietly. You can't really say in the back room because there's a huge team of people working on it, but it's, it, hmm. it's going to be a very, I think if we call it automated device, which I think is a far better phrase. I think everybody, including the robos hates the robo phrase. Um, advice is far more than just giving somebody an asset model and saying put your cash into that um what else is there sorry rather in in terms of advice as opposed to mm -hmm. what else what else do you consider in your turn in your point of view what else is part of advice what else do you need to give if you're to say you're giving advice besides besides asset uh, allocation um full look at the individual's holistic position mm -hmm. um understand their goals and, and understand their needs mm -hmm. and, and understand in far more detail than these things usually do in the so-called robo advisors mm -hmm. Att attitude to risk capacity mm -hmm. for loss you know most of these are I think as they are right now, just, just a matter of, okay, here's an easier way to invest your money. And yeah. we've delivered a better onboarding. We've, mm -hmm. we've delivered a better onboarding proposition to enable you to hold um, a particular asset portfolio. Mm -hmm. To me, that's not advice. You sure. know, ad advice is about a, a, a far, far wider. I think the, um, the, the best thing I've seen in the US that's near it 
um, mm -hmm. is United Income, which got got bought by um, Capital One uh, a few months Why ago. Why do you like that so much? Um, well, they're going through the full range of um, there's retirement counselling. They're, they're genuinely getting end to end into what the customer needs. I mean, that's the only thing um, that I've seen in the US that could quite easily, and it, it won't happen now. And I, I wrote a piece when it um, happened saying how sad I was that it got bought by Capital One because it meant the service was never going to come to the UK or it's oh. highly unlikely to ever come to the UK because Capital One over here really just have a credit card business. They don't have much else. Um, right. And it, it's the only thing I've seen out of the US um, that could have come straight over here and would have just, um, you know, Matt Fellows obviously was the main force behind it. We also had Elizabeth Kelly, who spent a lot of time, you know, in the previous administration work, working at, at the White House and, and speaking to financial regulators around the world. And you very much see her fingerprints on it. You know, um, I think they've done amazing things. Um, would have been great to see that come over here. But, you know, well, that creates an opportunity for another firm in the UK to build something. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this. I think the thing is, with, with full robo-advice, it's a far more complicated process. Mm. Um, very few people so far have built anything that's powerful enough to go end-to-end -end through all the options. I'm sure people will, but it, it's not something you get some money quickly, you know, make a lot of announcements, get something out quickly. It's a long-term process. You need to go away probably for two, three, four years and build and build and build. Then you have something. I think, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that these things will emerge on both sides of the Atlantic and elsewhere in the world. Um, and, and true and, robot, true advice. True advice in an automated process. And, you know, let's face it. Where we are right now, um, interpersonal skills still play a huge role in financial advice. Um, what do you but, say? Sorry? Why do you Why? say that? Um, when people are taking life decisions, decisions, especially if you're at decumulation, that they can't afford to get wrong, you know, they, the, when you start getting into retire, actually income in retirement, if you get it all wrong, it's highly unlikely the, per the people have the opportunity to go out and earn all the money again. You know, if you get it wrong and, the, and, they, and they lose 30, 40%, that ain't coming back. Not for those people. Um, so are you, talk, are you talking about um, the order of returns? Like if they have a big loss in the beginning, it screws them up for the rest, as opposed to they have well, a big all, loss in the middle. Or, or order order returns, but also um, if they have a you know they don't have the capacity. Okay, if somebody in their thirties hmm. takes a very aggressive strategy and it all goes wrong, they've got another twenty thirty years working, earning more money to put themselves hmm. back in the position they were. When people have actually got to retirement, they're going to be taking the money out. And they're highly, they're not likely to see 
a further large injection of cash coming along to their savings pot. Sure. So that's what they've that. got. But, so can you explain the interpersonal skills that are required? Um, I think we're at the situation today where, you know, the reality is that consumers still like speaking to people before taking financial decisions and the majority of them are not yet ready to trust technology with lifetime, you know, some of the most important financial decisions in their lives. Even if the technology is in reality far better placed mm -hmm. to give that information and that, that guidance, um, the nature of human beings right now and our trust in technology or rather lack of it, I believe right now is that people, if you look at a model that I think does work well, say personal capital, you know, where they, they've, they've done really well, you know, heavy use of technology, but at the same time, very much engaging the humans in the process. And they're for uh, sale. Well, you know, I, I must admit, I hadn't seen that one. When did that one come out? I saw in an article over the weekend that JP Morgan had pulled out of the running to buy them. All right. Okay. I think because they wanted too much money. You know, they're all, they're all also, they also took you know, a fair amount of funding. Yep. True. And they, and they, they are only around 12 billion in AUM, which is like 1.2 million in revenue mm. at, at one basis point. Yeah. Um, so they, um, they, they want more, they want a billion. And yeah, no one is willing to pay a billion. Although I think they seem to have some pretty decent technology, at least their personal information manager. Yeah. Looks like it's some good technology. Uh, yeah. I, I, you know, well, if, if, if you look at the, the background of the business and the way it was set up in the first place, mm. yeah, they, they really built some solid technology and, and their ability to sort of have a situation where you, you're going through virtual meetings, which we're all now moving to. They were doing it nearly mm -hmm. 10 years ago you right. know I, you know i i remember speaking to bill harris um when first time i ever met bill was um in in san francisco they were literally building the set the office in san francisco around mm -hmm. us i mean you know the workmen were in with you know hard hats on mm -hmm. um yeah. and it was right at the beginning of the business um and i think the vision there um was was very much technology driven but they, they were good mm. at pivoting really quickly mm. um and obvi obviously um uh, bill had an awful lot of experience from previous ventures and indeed you know great management team there subsequently so let me be a little well. confrontational here um, sure when you talk about uh, people aren't ready for full digital advice yeah when it, when i want some of the firms that i really like are the mobile app financial players like acorns stash money lion uh, and others, and just those three firms alone have, um, I think, for a like twelve or thirteen million users. And if you had a couple more of those players of the of the um, the mobile apps, they've got you know close to thirty million users of, of mm. these mobile finance apps, and, and who are all coming from different directions into wealth. Some start in wealth and move to banking. Some start banking, move to wealth. Some start lending and move into banking. You know, but they they have 20, 20, 25 million users. 
uh, Vanguard itself has 30 million customers. So all those firms, like a, they're like Vanguard. They add them all up. The whole people who are using purely digital advice. Now, it may not be all their assets, it may only be a part, but it shows there's a lot of traction for purely digital mobile experiences with either finance, wealth, banking, lending. Absolutely. But I think the point is, is that their primary investment vehicle? Take Monzo over here. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, everybody has, um, you talk to millennials, they've all got a Monzo account. Mm -hmm. But then the question is, okay, so are you using that for your main banking? Oh, no, no, no. My, my, mm -hmm. my salary goes into one of the big four. So my, my point is, and with, with those organizations, 20, 30 years down the line, I'm absolutely convinced we'll have that trust. We'll probably have that trust in, in 10 years, maybe even five. Um, and, and I think I just want to come back for a minute to the point of, for the immediate foreseeable future, the best mix is the human delivering the trust or obtaining the trust and the technology doing the hard number crunching. You know, I mean, no one in their right mind should be trying to complete with a piece of silicon doing hard number crunching because carbon brains ain't, up, brains ain't up to it. You know, this, this sort of silicon- Carbon brains, carbon based yeah. brains. Yeah, silicon carbon mix is the, is is the mm. best mix pure pure now. carbon not so good well right now you know we we can't process numbers anywhere near as fast as a as a piece of silicon you know that's that's where we are today right and uh, on that note uh, i yeah. want to wrap things up ian ian mckenna live from the uk live from london thank you very much for being on the program and sharing with us all your thoughts and uh I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Great talking to everyone. Thanks. Cheers. Hey, it's Craig again. I just want to do a quick recap of my interview with uh, Ian McKenna. Uh, I really liked his comment about regulation being the catalyst for innovation. Uh, that's, a, that's a keeper. Also about robo-advice. It's not the right term. They're really robot, uh, robot robo-asset allocators. And full robo-advice is a very complicated process and how interpersonal skills still play a huge role in financial advice. And for the foreseeable future, as Ian says, the best mix is both human uh, on the trust side and the technology on the automation side. I would certainly agree with that. So I hope you enjoyed this. Please uh, remember to subscribe everywhere you know, the podcast is available. And look forward to seeing you again next time.